We're continuing our series through the book of First Corinthians. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. First Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father <clears throat> to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I, prote I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig. I just want to add my welcome to everyone else's. We're glad that you're here. Um, I welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's risen from the grave, the friend of sinners. Um, no matter what you're coming into this room carrying with you, the burdens, the worries, the pains, um, you have a Savior here who is your friend and wants to come alongside you and carry you. Um, it's him who's the focus of this whole service. It's him that we're going to talk about today. Um, we'll see where this goes. I, I was thinking this week about old movies. Um, I was thinking about old submarine movies. Uh, I haven't watched a submarine movie in a long time. Maybe that's a thing of the past. I don't know. But uh, in old sub movies, if those of you guys who have watched it, one of the most submarine movies are inherently tense, right? It's suspenseful. These quiet moments where that little you know, the sonar is going off. And they're dropping the depth charges, you know, those are those silent bombs that kind of sink down, down slowly. The bombs are dropping down and they're going to explode on something that's submerged underneath the water. Um, they would be unnoticed and then all of a sudden, boom! And the, rock, you know, the shock waves would rock that submarine. 
I uh, was thinking about that this week. I don't typically think about submarine movies during my weeks, but I was this week because I was reading a historian uh, describe the impact of Christianity and specifically 1 Corinthians on the Greco-Roman world. Thinking about the Greco-Roman world compared to our society now, there is a huge difference. Why? He was thinking about that, talking about that. And he said that uh, Christianity, and specifically the book of 1 Corinthians, was like a depth charge. Nothing you would immediately notice hits the ground there in, first, in, in Corinth. But then, boom, shockwaves, rippling out, rippling out, changing the very fabric of the world. Over time, everything's changed. It's amazing to think about it. I love that description. I love that description of the New Testament. I love that description of the early church and specifically of our text here, 1 Corinthians We know it's historically true that the world was transformed by what we hold in our hands, what we're going to look at this morning, the Word of God. Many of us have experienced the depth charge impact of God's Word on our own lives. Um, And we're getting to, here in 1 Corinthians specifically, one of the most impactful sections of all. Last week I said, during the course of the sermon, I said, I'd love it if each of you Um, would say to each other at some point, I know it's been hard, and I'm sorry, but he is risen. I know it's been hard, and I'm sorry, but he's risen. Nate Himes came up and said that to me. Thank you, brother. Uh, Meant a lot. At least somebody's listening to my sermons. Just kidding. I'm just joking. No, he said that to me, and it meant a lot. And um, I hope that you guys had an opportunity to even think about that reality. But here's, here's the question that chapter 15 begs about that phrase. The question is this. How does that phrase that, um, I know it's been hard, and I'm sorry, but he is risen. How does that actually work for you? Let me ask it a different way. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ transform the hardships or the difficulties that you're facing because that's the implication i know it's hard i'm sorry but he's risen there's something about the resurrection of the dead that transforms the difficult things that we face day in and day out and really for all eternity what is that this chapter chapter 15 we started last week We've got this week, and then we've got two more weeks in chapter 15. It's so substantial, so important. Why? Because it's all about the resurrection. So really, the question we're getting at is, what's so important about the resurrection? Why does that really matter? And by the way, um, I should mention this. When I'm talking about the resurrection, I'm actually not just talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the resurrection humanity's resurrection. When the Bible talks about the resurrection, it means all who trust in him will rise. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. That's what we're going to talk about. Last week, this week, next two weeks ahead, we're going to talk about this. And maybe you think that, um, honestly, like kind of like I did for a very long time, that the resurrection was Uh, you know, a part of the Christian faith, but not really all that significant. It is not just a small part of the Christian faith. It is critical to our walk with the Lord, to our lives. It needs to be an active part of your Christian life. We're going to look at that today, and here's how we're going to do that. In our time together this morning, we're going to answer three questions. 
What if the resurrection is fake? What if the resurrection is real? What if we deny the resurrection? That's what the text walks us through today. That's going to be our outline for our time together. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on that right now. Father, in this moment, we just um, bow our heads before you and we acknowledge that you are King of kings and Lord of lords and there is none like you. Lord Jesus, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and cause us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to, to grasp in new ways the implications of the resurrection in our own lives. Help us taste a little bit of the kingdom that is to come even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's answer the first question. What if the resurrection is fake? Uh, if you have your Bible, I, I'd love for you to have it open. It's going to be 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. I'm going to reread verse 12 for us. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? This whole section, this first paragraph here of 1 Corinthians 15 that we're in, verses 12 through, I think, 16, is a warning. Maybe you, you like Christianity for some reason. Maybe um, you just feel good about being around a church or being around Christian people but you're not so sure about this resurrection thing. Or maybe you've been a Christian for some time, but you don't really know much about the resurrection. You don't really care about the resurrection. It doesn't really make that big of a difference to you. You've got Jesus. That's enough for you. This section of scripture should snap you to attention. It is a crossroads. You have to make a decision. You're going to go right. You're going to go left. The resurrection is so essential to Christianity that the faith rises or falls on it. You guys ever play Jenga? That stack of blocks? You guys know how you get down toward the end there and you got that one block that you pull it out and you know, you know it's going to fall, right? This is the, the resurrection is that Jenga block. You pull it out. If it isn't real, the whole thing falls. That's how significant the resurrection is. So, what if the resurrection is fake? Three implications. If it's fake, if it's not true, here are three implications. One, if the resurrection is fake, Christ hasn't been raised. That's verse 13. I'll reread it. Verse 13 says, But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. This is very straightforward. No resurrection of all the people means Jesus is in the tomb. And if he's in the tomb, Jesus is a liar. His disciples are liars. The whole thing is a sham, a joke, and actually probably worse than a joke. It's a horrible trick. That's the first implication. Second implication, if the resurrection is fake, our preaching and our faith is in vain. That's verses 14 through 16. I'm just going to reread verse 14 for us. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. No resurrection means that what we preach, not just me up here on a Sunday morning, but you guys, what you talked about with your friends or your family or whoever, what we preach about hope and peace and forgiveness of sin, it is in vain. It will not work. Our faith in a living God 
that releases us from the guilt and shame of sin? No. The God who is active in our lives and transforms us? No. Not real. In fact, it's worse than that. We're misrepresenting God if it's not true. We're saying something false about God. We make him out to be someone who he's not. You thought he came to rescue us? No, he didn't. There's an old hymn that says this. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. If there's no resurrection, your faith has rested on thin air. That's what that means. Third, if the resurrection is fake, faith is futile, and sins remain. That's verses 17 through 19. I'm going to reread just verse 17 for us. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are in your sins. No resurrection? Straightforward. Our faith is futile. It's unable to do what it is supposed to do. I am, this is not going to, I hope, I hope this doesn't surprise you. I am not a Trekkie. I don't really watch Star Wars all that often. But when I was growing up, um, I did watch Star Wars. And the scariest enemy in all of space were called the Borg. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. They were this one particular alien race um, that what they would do is they'd try to assimilate other races into their collective. They would travel around in a gigantic square spaceship, and it was very scary, right? They would go to a living organism, incorporate them into, assimilate into their race, and control their minds and their bodies. And what they would do, which was particularly scary, is they'd pull up next to your ship, they were much bigger than your ship, and they would announce to the other ship, we are the Borg, surrender, resistance is futile. That's what they would say. And when that ship would come upon you and they would say resistance is futile, hope would just drain away. You were done for. Without the, resur- without the resurrection, our faith is futile. It's ineffective. It's of no use. Our sins, they're still there. Our loved ones who died trusting in him, They're in the grave for good. Our life, we're the most pitiful, most to be pitied of all people. Sometimes we think of Christianity as like a safety net, you know? I I don't know if you've caught yourself thinking this before. I have. Where you feel like, hey, look, you know, if it's real, awesome. I get to go to heaven. I get to go be with God. But if not, yeah, you know, whatever. You know, it's it's still a pretty good life anyway. Kind of like a safety net. No. No. The Bible tells us that if you believe it and it's not true, this resurrection is not true, we're the most to be pitied, the most miserable people on earth. Why? Is it a wasted life? Is that what it is? Well, that's part of it. But what Paul is specifically angling at in this section is this. If our faith is futile, our sins, my sins, are still there. And I know I'm in trouble. I know there's payback. What I'm saying is this. If I look into my heart 
I know what kind of man that I am. I know what I've done. And I know there's payback for those. Those sins are still on me. I recently read an interview um, of the lead singer of U2, Bono. A lot of you guys know who I'm talking about. He's, he is not a theologian or a scholar, but he makes a, this point in a really authentic way that, really, that resonated with me. I wanted to share it with you. I'll read what he said. So he was talking about this idea of being of our sin. He said, at the center of all religions is the idea that what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met with an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that this law is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap so you will sow stuff. Love interrupts, so to speak, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if this law was going to be, was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep doo-doo. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my place, I'm sorry, that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Here's the point. Here's what Bono's saying. Here's what I'm trying to say. Here's what 1 Corinthians is trying to say. Without Christ's victory, our sins remain. Our faith is of no use. We would all be in deep doo-doo. Paul is showing us how absurd, how tragic, how empty it is to deny or ignore the resurrection. Here's what, here's what that means. You can't take Christianity as some sort of nice, sanitized, pretty, modern, religious thought or ideal where you can deny the miraculous parts and embrace the feel-good parts. That does not work. Which brings us to the next point. What if the resurrection is real? What if the resurrection actually happened? Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul starts right off the bat, right off this section and says, look, it is real. It is fact. It's not fake. It's real. If you want to hear more proof about the reality of the resurrection, it's an actual historic event. You can go listen to last week's sermon that'll be posted online. Um, I think up here on the screen, I put three resources that have been helpful to me. They go in depth into the historicity, that is the factual reality of the resurrection. Jesus actually rose from the dead. It really did happen. And that is so important and such good news. I told several people this week that I love my job. And this passage of scripture is why I was saying that. Why I was saying to people, you know, I love what I get to do. Why? I get to study, meditate, and drink into my soul. I need to drink this in. I'm talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Craig Cody needs to drink this into his soul. These powerful truths, this depth charge type shock wave 
reality. I get to read what what great pastors like C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller say about the resurrection. And I get to pass it on to people that I love so much, you guys, and I pray for and I care about so deeply. I'm going to tell you what this passage did for me and what I hope it does for you today. It's this. It challenges my low expectations of Christianity. It made me see that I can settle for far too little when it comes to following Jesus. My expectations, our expectations are often set far too low. Let me explain. How does your Christianity work for you? What does it do for you? Does it bring you peace? Hope? Joy? Power? We talked about that last week. Does it give you a general sense that you're forgiven of your sins? All those things are true and those things are real. But if that is all Christianity is to you, you settle for far too little. I'm not minimizing those important things, but it is too little. In this passage of Scripture, we learn that we are given, what we are given in Christ is so much more. If the resurrection is real, and it is, three implications. One, Jesus is just the first. In verse 20, what we just read, verse 20, chapter 15, it calls Jesus the first fruits. We're not a farming society, so we kind of lose the meaning of what, what these, those types of things mean. Um, every year, farmers planted, watered, weeded, tended, prayed for a good harvest. All life depended on it. You think about a little farming village, you know, hundreds of years ago. Really, the whole city is dependent on a good harvest coming in. So when the first crops got ripe, the joy. Can you imagine the joy? It would have been so great. Those first fruits meant that there was going to be a harvest. All the work that we did the previous year actually paid off. This is just a little taste of the harvest that's about to come in. It's going to happen. The harvest is coming. Look, I've got these first fruits. Jesus is the proof. He is the promise of our future reality. We will be like him. That means great hope for the future. And it means incredible strength for right now. He is the first fruits. Christians, you and me, brother and sister, we are people who live in this old world right now with the power of the new world, the one that's coming. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of the world to come. The one that brings new life resurrection life is at work in our mortal bodies right now the holy spirit he is here he's at work in us jesus through the resurrection set in motion it's like a like a huge tidal wave like a wave that is to come he is the first fruits but the harvest is about to come it's like he took a knife and he just gashed the world unleashing the new one that is to come. 
when he rose from the dead. He is the inbreaker, and he is just the first. Many more to come, including you. If you trust in him, you will be like him. Jesus is just the first. If the resurrection is real, and it is, he's just the first. Here's the second one. If the resurrection is real, Jesus is undoing what Adam did. That's verses 21 through 23. I'm just going to read verse 21 for us. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. In Genesis 3, all the way back at the beginning of time, Adam sinned against God. By one man, death entered the world as a result of his sin. Now, another greater man, another greater Adam has come. Jesus is the second Adam. He brings not death, but resurrection. And just as death came through Adam, life comes to all who trust in Christ. All of us, all humanity, no matter where you are on the religious scale today or what you believe about God or yourself or the world, you are in Adam just by virtue of being alive, by being born, by being human. We are in Christ by faith in his name. So what does that mean? It means this passage is telling us that Jesus came to undo the curse of Adam and to start a whole new humanity. Jesus did not come just to make you feel better, just just to make you feel happier. He didn't come just to help us get along. He came. This is what I mean by understanding the depths and the glory of what we're talking about here. He came to completely remake us. There's an order here that's expressed in this passage, like a, like a first, second, third, fourth, an order. Jesus rose, then we are spiritually raised, we are in Christ by faith in him, and then one glorious day, Jesus will come, and all who belong to him will rise bodily from the grave, and we will be new. That will happen. I've got this plant in my backyard it's called a pokeweed. It was there when we moved in, and I have tried to get rid of the pokeweed. I cannot get rid of the pokeweed. It's one plant. It's not like scattered all over my backyard or anything like that. It's just one plant, and I, I try to, you can chop it up, you can cut it down, you can dig it deep, but it seems like it just keeps coming back again and again and again. It's got this gigantic root. It's down in there, and if you can't get to the root, you're not getting out the pokeweed. It's all about the root. If you're a Christian, you've got the Christ root in you. If you've trusted in Christ, if you are in Christ, the power of Christ, the very divine nature of the risen Lord of all is rooted in you and it will never stop growing. It's working itself into you so fully that it actually forces out of you everything that is imperfect, sinful, not eternal, down to your cellular structures and your very soul. 
When this says, Christ is in you, what it means is that root is in you to the point that it's going to transform you into something completely you, but totally perfect. I'm talking mind, body, soul, totally redeemed, reborn, restored to perfection, the way it was always meant to be. A lot of writers, when you talk about the resurrection, they will tell you this. The resurrection is why Christianity is so amazing, so stupendous, so audacious, so glorious, that it's either a massive deception or it's undeniably true. Tim Keller said that this is precisely why it's impossible for anyone to say, oh, Christianity is is nice for some people, but it's not for me. How could this, this total transformation, the return to which we were created for, how could this be nice for some people and not for others? It's a return to that for which we were made. It's a return to he for whom we were made and to be the people we were created to be. It is about the total remaking of the cosmos. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about it. It's going to be up here on your screen. Just absorb what he's trying to say. I'll try to make it understandable for you. The command, be perfect, is not idealistic gas. The command to us to be perfect. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. God said in the Bible that we were God's and he is going to make good his words. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. This is talking about that Christ root bearing fruit, actual, the actual resurrection moment where we are in our new bodies glorified with him. A bright stainless mirror, picking up the quote again, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. If the resurrection is real, Jesus is undoing what Adam did. He's doing that. He's doing that in you. And here's the third implication. If the resurrection is real, God, through Christ, reigns over all. This is verses 24 through 26. Reread those verses with me real quick. Then comes the end, verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, going back to the order of events that we see in this passage. First, Christ rose. That already happened. He's the first fruits. Second, we have spiritual resurrection by faith in his name. All who trust in Christ, we get a taste of the kingdom now through his spirit. Then, 
on this last day when Jesus returns, those who believe will rise. And finally, the whole universe will be resurrected. Jesus' resurrection doesn't mean only a new humanity. He comes again to recreate the universe, the very ground upon which you stand or sit. To clear out creation of the blemishes, destroying every other rule, authority, and power, and he alone will reign. Paul makes this very clear in verses 27 and 28. Jesus conquers and he hands the keys over to God the Father. What does that mean? One day, Christ will return. And all things in the universe, including all of God's people, like Jesus himself, the Son, will be subjected to the, to the Father's rule. Now, the Father's rule. Most of us in this room are Americans. When we hear about rule or reign, we naturally chafe. Our country was kind of founded against the idea that we don't like rule and reign. What's God's rule like? It's like the Garden of Eden. God's people, in God's place, in God's presence, under God's perfect, benevolent rule. That's where we're headed. Evil defeated. You can rest your head on the chest of the king. Death is dead. Jesus, the first fruits of the dead, from the dead, now alive, he set all this in motion. And it's going to happen. So what does that mean for you now? I heard this illustration and I want to I wanna share it with you. Imagine that you're given a house on the ocean. It's a beautiful house. Amazing view. On a cliff, you can see beautiful sunsets every night. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. You're super thankful for it. But you, it's your house. And if you're a homeowner, you know that taking care of a house, it's a pain. Sometimes you got to go down into the basement. You got to work on the plumbing. You got to fix things that are broken. What makes this house worth all the basement work? It's the time you spend up on the top floor, on that porch, seeing the sunsets, enjoying it with others. But what if you spent all the time in the basement working on the plumbing? You'd hate it. You'd hate that house. Following the way of Jesus, being a Christian is hard. There are many difficult things, upkeep type things, boring things on the road of obedience to Christ. You have to get up early to read your Bible and pray. Sometimes it's sweet. Sometimes you're doing the basement plumbing. But when you've got a house on the ocean, the mundane is outweighed by the magnificence. So brother and sister in Christ, here's what I'm actually asking you is, do you ever get on the porch? Do you ever take a step back and just behold the full landscape of all that God has given you in Christ? That you are a child of God. That you are rescued from sin. That you will rise bodily from the dead. 
that you will be made new, that you will feel his embrace forever, that you will reign with him forever, that your loved ones will rise and be with us forever, that there will be no more death forever. There will be no sickness, no sorrow, no pain, no toil forever. Do you get on the porch and just behold what Christ has done? Some of us spend all of our time in the basement. Ah, I got to be a better Bible reader. I got to be a better prayer. I got to be a better this, a better that. You're down in the basement. God says, I will give you more than you can ask or imagine. However great you think that day is going to be when Jesus returns, it's going to be so much better. Whatever your conception is, what picture you have in your mind when the trumpet sounds and he descends, you're going to want to throw whatever you had in your, in your head in the trash compared to the reality of his return. Setting your mind on those things, getting out on the porch, you know what that does? It brings hope. Hope to persevere. Hope to do what is right. Hope in a million, million different ways. Hope to address whatever situation you're facing right now or whatever feels hard. Here's another, here's another thing it does. You know, we live in a time where we want to make peace with death. Or, or, or probably more likely, we want to deny it. Like that, that we just want to insulate ourselves from it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to see it. Brother and sister, no more denial. And no more peace with death. This passage says death is our enemy. We hate it. I hate it. We hate it. God hates it. We declare war on death. And guess what? Our king has come and he has conquered death. Do you soak that in? Do you rejoice in that and marvel at that and delight in that? That kind of hope, that kind of hope for a Christian in their daily life, it's like trying to keep a beach ball underwater. It's just going to keep popping back up. That hope can't stay contained. It can't be defeated. Death can't even hold it. Do you get on the porch? What Christ has done is marvelous. He is marvelous. That's why the resurrection, which is real, is such a fundamental part of our Christian lives. It is our beautiful future, and it is already at work in us now. So, wrapping it up, what if you deny the resurrection? Why would you ever want to do that in the first place, just to be honest? After all the proof and all the truth, but if we do, that's this final warning in verses 29 through 34. If we deny or simply ignore the reality of the resurrection, it impacts all of life. That's kind of what Paul's talking about here. In a, in a word, if I could just summarize it, it's if you deny the resurrection, it makes everything pointless. That's Paul's point. Uh, verse 29, I'm not going to go into all this, but he's, he's saying your worship patterns are pointless if there's no resurrection from the dead. That's what he's, he's talking about, the baptism of the dead. Scholars aren't exactly sure what uh, this practice was. Paul doesn't seem to endorse it here. But here's what that meant. Baptism symbolizes resurrection, right? You die with Christ, you rise with Christ. 
But if you don't believe in the resurrection, why would you even do it anyway? That's Paul's point. It's silly. It's pointless. If you deny the resurrection, it means that suffering for the gospel is pointless. That's verse 30 and 31. If there's no resurrection, why would Paul put his life on the line? Why should anyone? And then finally, you deny the resurrection? Well, then let's eat, drink, and be merry because life is pointless. That's verse 32. The ultimate conclusion is, without resurrection for us, for all people, for the world, all of life is pointless. And then Paul quotes this old comedy who you hang around with affects your your perspective so just as we're reflecting on the resurrection and on your heart right now today and you getting out on the porch me getting out on the porch do our inputs the stuff we take in the people we're around people media do they build your hope in christ Don't be deceived. The resurrection is real. Wake up. Snap out of it. Get to work. That's Paul's point here as he's closing this section. Brothers and sisters, these are depth charges that ripple through all of life. Through a community. Through a country. Through the world. Do you believe in the resurrection from the dead? I sure hope you do. It is real. And if you believe, get on the porch of all that God has given you and marvel, worship, glorify Christ for all he's done. He is the first fruits. You're next. He is the second Adam coming to remake all of us. He is the returning king coming to rule and reign perfectly. Oh, man, we have such a hope, true hope, not wishful thinking, a reality that's to come. Resurrection power at work in our lives now, promise of unspeakable glory to come. So let's live for the kingdom, live for the kingdom today and for that day when he returns. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts that you would help us to get out on the balcony and behold all of your glory, even as we're doing the maintenance work of, of time with you, that we would be experiencing your glory day by day, marveling that all you've done for us. And Lord, that you would, as these truths seep deep into our hearts, build our strength and our hope and our resolve to persevere, glorifying you until the day that you do return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.